Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we talk to a physicist who works for a non-profit organization that aims to end the culture of silence surrounding bullying and harassment in workplaces. But first, we look at the architectural merit, or otherwise, of the buildings that house physics departments and research labs. The concept of the modern university has been around for nearly a thousand years, and universities and research institutes have often been on the cutting edge of architecture. From the splendid King's College Chapel at Cambridge to the soaring Wilson Hall at Fermilab, these buildings are meant to inspire generations of scholars, and they sometimes do. However, I wouldn't be surprised if people have been arguing about the merits of campus architecture since the University of Bologna came into being way back in 1088. More recently, the theoretical physicist Cliff Burgess started a Twitter thread inviting people to nominate ungainly university physics buildings. And it's been a hit amongst architecturally-minded physicists around the world. To talk about physics buildings, Cliff joins me down the line from CERN in Geneva, where he's visiting from McMaster University and the Perimeter Institute in Canada. And I'm also joined by my Physics World colleagues, Margaret Harris and Mateen Durrani, who have visited many a physics building and research lab in their day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. So, Cliff, what was your inspiration for for starting this Twitter thread about the uh, aesthetics of physics buildings? Well, you know, I was just um, thumbing through Twitter, as you do, (laughs) and and somebody had a much, you know, a very nice thread about beautiful university campuses, which I spent some time going through and and, uh, was admiring many of the campuses that were there, some very beautiful campuses, and it reminded me of this complaint that physicists always have that the physics building is always the dump on a beautiful campus, even if the campus is beautiful. So uh, as you do on Twitter, uh, as soon as you have the thought, it's, it's, it's in the air. <laughs> and so that was the tweet. And so Cliff, lots of people have posted uh, pictures of, uh, well, let's face it, some pretty ugly buildings um, on your thread. Were, were you surprised by uh, its popularity? Yeah, I'm always surprised because I can never predict which ones are, are going to be picked up on and which ones are not. Uh, but I'm not surprised that many people felt the same way about their buildings. <laughs> and, and there's kind of almost a perverse pride in it, as far as I could tell, that people feel like they were in the ugliest. <laughs> and and have you spotted any trends in the responses? Are there, are there certain types of buildings that, that people don't like or uh, people in certain countries uh, very... Uh, uh, unresponsive to uh, to the architecture of their local university. Uh, it's hard to filter out the. I, I, I probably most of the people that follow me are from a particular part of the world, just because we're you know we know each other kind of thing. But the uh, I think the trend is concrete that they everybody there was a for some reason in the sixties probably a good reason that the physics buildings were being built and and they were trying to make them probably solid for the people who had labs and 
and there and and sixties architecture people have much to apologize for. <laughs> so so there's a lot of concrete buildings with not a lot of windows, and that seemed to be the theme of the picture. And, and Margaret, um, what about you? Do do you have a a most ugly physics building, or perhaps a, a, a beautiful physics building that you admire? Well, I mean, I, I've um, the the physics building for my undergraduate degree was at Duke University. It's actually not the ugliest building on campus by a long shot. It's a sort of it's kind of a slightly boring building. It's brick with some sort of neoclassical front. But definitely the ugliest building was there was the chemistry building when I was there, which is as Cliff described a big, hulking concrete monstrosity uh, that was built in I think might be mid made the seventies rather than the sixties, but that similar sort of era. The thing is that it was actually a fairly practical building. They've only just moved out of it a few years ago after they, the department grew out of it. And it was actually designed with, with laboratories in mind. So, you know, it may have been a really ugly to look at, but it was actually a fairly functional building, as I understand it. Um, in terms of other physics buildings I've known and, and maybe not so much loved as tolerated, uh, the one at Durham University when I did my PhD is really a it's a game of two halves because there's this gorgeous new sort of architect design center for fundamental physics. And then there's the sort of brick, sort of rusting metal clad thing that was built in the 60s and looks really ugly and leaks like a sieve like if the wind blew the right way the window uh blinds would bow in on our lab and it played hell with our lasers and all that sort of thing um (laughs) so so yeah there's there's definitely there is some some very fine architecture out there but there's some really ugly stuff as well and i think the important thing is some of the ugly stuff is actually quite functional and i'm not necessarily sure some of the newer buildings that they look pretty but i've not you know heard necessarily whether they they work for the the thing they're intended to do i blame the experimentalists too that's the <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know the theorists they, they, they can't look at pretty um objects in the lab so they have to look at pretty surroundings <laughs> in the building that's right and, and what about you Bettina? I, I know you have an interest in sort of the evolution of of buildings you know what 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 was on a on a specific site at a university and when and why it was torn down and replaced with another building well do you, do you have any sort of pet peeves about physics departments that you've visited well, I did my PhD at the, the Cavendish laboratory at uh, University of Cambridge and and they moved in the mid seventies from a you know, probably a rather cramped but quaint and beautiful Victorian building out to a site in uh, the west of Cambridge, which was uh, probably, well, definitely my vote for the ugliest physics lab ever, probably the world's ugliest university building ever. And I'm, I'm just reminding myself, I've got a picture on my screen here, and it looks like a sort of concrete ship with pipes coming out, tiny windows. Um, I think I once described it in an article, it looked like a 10-year-old had drawn it with an Etch-a-Sketch. Um, it is horrific. It was really ugly. Um, I remember Brian Pippard had a hand in designing it, and he had all these great ideas that inside it was very conducive to collaboration and it was um, engineered to the, to the right standards for doing you know, high-quality physics experiments, which may have been true. But from the outside, it just looked awful, awful. And I remember the stairs on the inside. He remember the idea was that these stairwells were where people would meet and chat. But they quickly, quickly got covered in, just filled with junk. People would just use them to deposit all their old lasers, their old kit, their old equipment. So even the inside didn't look great either. 
uh, the experimentalists ruining a good building again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, obviously, inside there was a fantastic exhibition of you know JJ Thompson's equipment and Rutherford stuff, and all inside there were some fascinating museum pieces. But outside, it was such a dispiriting place to live. I should say, since I was there, there have been some extensive redevelopments, and I think it's a lot better now. And there are some um, you know great uh, great new buildings there that are you know up to the minute. So, so, sort of following on on your theme of uh, of childish looking buildings, uh, for me the worst physics building that I've ever seen is the the Blackett Laboratory. I think that's what it's called at Imperial College London, and it 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 looks like if you were to take a, a shoebox and and crayons and 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 give them to a five year old and say. Draw, you know, make a building out of this. That's exactly <laughs> the Blackett Lab. With, with, a, with a Christmas theme, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I, I think the, the, the thing that makes the Blackett Lab it, so much worse is that, you know, it's in South Kensington. It's almost right across the road from the Royal Albert Hall, you know, this beautiful Victorian building. It's just down the road from the Victorian Albert Museum, which is you know, probably the finest collection of beautiful things in the world. And then you've got the Blackett Lab. But I, th I think you've done a bit of research into that site, haven't you, Mateen? And uh, it always wasn't like that on that site, was it? Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you Google Imperial College old destroyed physics building, you'll see this amazing, elaborate, uh, ornate Victorian edifice that was just pulled down in the 50s. And it almost sort of uh, breaks your heart to see what was pulled down and what it was replaced with. There probably were reasons for doing it. Presumably, it was expensive to maintain and perhaps the space wasn't very flexible inside um, and all that sort of stuff. But when you look at it, you know, it just sort of... What were they thinking? What on earth were they thinking? But, you know, um, there still are some beautiful buildings on that campus, just unfortunately not that science one. I mean, it's down the road from, I think, the Science Museum, which still looks, you know, in London, which still looks amazing. But, yeah, if you look at it, if, you know, if you, if you, if you hate to see lost edifices, don't Google that building because, you know, you'll, it'll break your heart. I want to pick up on the, this sort of like theory versus experiment thing, because, you know, Cliff Hamish mentioned that you're at, um, affiliated with Perimeter Institute, which is obviously a building built for theorists. You know, what do you think of that building? Is it is it a good place to work? Is it a very collaborative space for a bit to be a theorist? Yeah, I think it, it's, um, you know, there's, it, it was kind of, I remember when they were building it, they were planning to build it, they went around to look at places that had been successful, like KITP in Santa Barbara and places like that, at, at making work spaces that were pleasant to work in and the things that they tried to make work i think they were successful and that there's very there are a lot of places to chat and uh, blackboards everywhere but it turns out that there were also some things that they didn't plan on uh so it's kind of hard to hide out and work because <laughs> all the offices have glass walls and, and so it's kind of hard to just be anonymous and just pretend you're not there so they re renovated a little bit and improved some of those things too but by, by and large i think it's, a, it's been a success yeah and so, Cliff, I know on the uh, on the on the Twitter thread, you posted a picture of a building that I'm really familiar with, the um, the Health <laughs> Sciences Building at McMaster University, and 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 you, you admitted it was a bit of a cheat, but I think that do they do medical physics there? So I think I think you might be okay with that. I don't think the medical physicists were actually in that building. I think they were in they're another building, but and also not the physics building, but. So it's still a cheat, I think. <laughs> so still a cheat, and so that—I mean—that is a huge building. It—it—I it, mean, would it be 
There is a certain sort of Pompidou Center inspiration because there's lots of exposed pipework and it's, yes. it's sort of these concrete modules with lots of space in between. And so, so what, what, what don't you like about it? Is it just the concreteness of it? Well, uh, one thing I don't like about it is I can see it from my backyard. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the winter when the trees have no leaves, it's, it's there. And it, it's like having a, 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 you know, I don't know how much you know about Hamilton, the city it's in, but it, it's a town that was a steel town. And so it has um, so an area of town, which we call Mordor, which was the, the steel mill, which still has uh, fires at the top. And, and it's not the most attractive place to look at. But, but it also, uh, the town went into a bit of a decline when the steel industry uh collapse essentially and so so if you're trying to attract students to a campus the last thing you're trying to remind them of is industrial collapse because it doesn't make the city sound very attractive and so so whoever designed this hospital it was like they wanted to have a hamilton theme and they wanted it to look like a factory <laughs> and so it, it looks like a, a kind of a brutalist factory and it's not very attractive from the point of view of uh, recruiting people and it's also not attractive to look out of your back window and see it so <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think if you if you work in a building that looks like that, you at least have the advantage that you can't actually see it when you look out the window. So, I mean, there it's a great that. place to work. <laughs> you just don't want to be the neighbor of the building that looks like that. Well, it turns out, because, because I live next to it, I know that they had a problem with their fans. So that there was some sort of a resonance that happened where their fans would all go together. And it sounded like SEAL Team 6 was helicoptering in the top and dropping down the, the team to take you out. And so if you're in the building, you heard, you heard that. <laughs> oh, oh well. Cliff, Cliff, have you ever been involved in designing a building or sort of helping to construct it or being on the management for sort of designing a new building or fitting it out? I've been kind of uh, close enough that I can, I haven't been on the actual committee, but I've talked to people who were at various points, people were renovating things at McGill when I was there. And also I remember uh, hearing some of the, the perimeter for the first few years wasn't in the building it's in now. And, and so they, they were designing it and talking about what would go into it. And, and I, and I think the reason that most physics buildings are not fancy is it's expensive. <laughs> so, you know, th there's trade-offs that are being made and often, it's often true that it's been, being designed by committee, which is uh, not a, a good way to do things either. Yeah, because a couple of years ago, I visited the, uh, uh, we're in Bristol, University of Bristol Life Sciences building, which was brand new, lovely, shiny building. And I went there to do an interview with a guy and I said, I, mean, I was saying, oh, it looks amazing. He was involved in designing. He said, no, he, he, he pointed out all the corners that have been cut. I think they call it value engineering, yes. <laughs> which is sort of saving money here, there, bit by bit, little cuts, corners are cut. And uh, when he sort of lifted the lid on what this building was all about, he said, well, you know, the lifespan of the building is 40 years and it's just going to get pulled down. And he contrasted it with a physics building at Bristol, which is one half of it is a beautiful sort of 20s neo-gothic sandstone building with a turret um you know looks amazing and that's still going strong and I, I i imagine it'll still be there in 100 years 200 years his fancy shiny life sciences building will be gone um and so he told me that you know however great it looks on the outside on the inside it's not the best and it's not going to last that long i wonder when, when was that the nice physics building built was it in the in the 19th century or? it was 1920s i think it opened um so it's sort of sandstone building and um, 
But I mean, Hamish, you drove past the other half of the building. There was somebody bolted on a giant 60s extension, uh, which is, you know, not the prettiest thing in the world. Probably very effective in terms of lab space, but uh, the contrast couldn't be greater with, with the other wing. Now, now, speaking of the 60s, Cliff, you, you did your bachelor's degree, I think, at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And that... Not in the, not in the 60s, I should say. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's make that clear. So I, I think the university came into being in 1959, and it does have a, a, a sort of a great collection of of 19 sort of 60s and 70s buildings. I remember going on a school trip there in, in, you know, sort of the 1980s and, you know, sort of being amazed at all these buildings. I, I suppose they still looked good then. <laughs> we weren't scornful <laughs> yet. Um, do, do you think that that sort of experience of being surrounded by all these 1960s buildings, uh, your first university experience, did that, uh, did that shape your view of, of what a university should look like? No, I, I think probably, I, I think I thought the university should look like, you know, Cambridge, <laughs> something, some glorious church-like thing. And, and, uh, and, and that's what I, but I, I didn't, of course, get that in, at Waterloo. Waterloo was kind of a very homogeneous. So there was a big uh, hulking great concrete math building there. So the physicists weren't quite so bad off as the math people were. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think I only came to appreciate how bad physics buildings were once I saw the contrast with the rest of the campus and some other places. One, one such was in, in Neuchâtel. I did a sabbatical in Neuchâtel, beautiful place in Switzerland on the lake, often sun-drenched. And it's got a beautiful, uh, I think it's a faculty of, of arts or something, glass-lined building on the edge of Lake Neuchâtel looking towards the Bernese Alps, which has a coffee shop in it, which I used to spend all my time in if I could. But it was very not far from the physics building, which was, again, one of these concrete boxes. And, and, and comparing them was just, it just it's just so striking when you see it in a beautiful campus like that. And, and Margaret, one building that we were talking about recently that, that you've seen is, is Wilson Hall at, uh, at Fermilab. And, and I've always thought that that's quite possibly the most beautiful or one of the most beautiful buildings in physics. Is, is it like that when you're there in real life? Yeah, it was. And I think, you know, we, we've, we've sort of been very down on concrete a lot during this conversation. But I think the, the Wilson Hall at Fermilab is this, well, I mean, it is concrete, but it's not a monstro monstrosity by any means. It looks like a sort of upside down uh, Y. And it's, uh, you know, very modern building designed in the 60s. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a beautiful sort of temple to physics. But uh, that said, concrete um, of a certain age tends to develop some very characteristic faults. It starts to leak, you know, the iron in inside the, the rebar, the steel rebar or something starts to decay. And so you need to actually do quite a lot of maintenance on it, which I think is possibly not appreciated in the 1960s. So you do have um, a lot of buildings from that era, if they haven't been maintained, they not only do they look ugly, they actually function ugly because of faults that have developed in the structure. But, you know, said Fermilab fortunately seems to have the resources so far, fingers crossed, to keep the building up and keep it looking, looking good. But Cliff, do you think it's because 
the architects think, well, physicists are thinking great abstract thoughts. They don't worry about the uh, reality of the building they're in, so just give them the worst possible building um, <laughs> and uh, they won't complain because their minds are on other I think that's, that's, quite, that's quite mean in architects for the team. I don't know. I, I, architects, some of the buildings I've been in, you know, the number of bathrooms haven't been designed very well. So I, sometimes I think it's more than they're not really thinking so much about the user, I think. <laughs> And, and at least in, uh, well, definitely in Canada and in the UK, and I think in a lot of countries around the world, there's been a huge boom in building university buildings over the past, you know, sort of, sort of 20 years. Um, do I, I mean, I, I did my PhD at McMaster 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I go back now and there's so many new buildings. So, you know, I, I almost get lost when I'm on campus. Cliff, do you think that, that the buildings that have been put up in the, the last sort of boom, uh, uh, how do they stand up? What's your view on them? Or are you in a new building at McMaster? No, we're in a, we're in an older one. You know, I, one of the nicest buildings at McMaster is the math building, which is kind of an older building. But it, they've renovated the inside, and they managed to renovate the inside to make it very functional with big blackboards without making the outside ugly. And so, um, I think that's probably the nicest building at McMaster right now. The, but the newer newer ones, at least they're they're. They don't assault your eye so much as some of the 60s ones do, which is a good thing. Yeah, I've seen, uh, not at McMaster, new buildings like the one at Perimeter uh, and, uh, and Cambridge, very scaffold damp. And they seem like they are uh, better in the sense that they, they, uh, they, they function well. It'll be interesting to see 40 years from now, now what they look like, though. And, and maybe the issues of, of maintenance will, will kind of come back and haunt people. I don't know how hard that's going to be. Well, I suppose, Mateen, according to Mateen, the, the building won't be there. Thanks, Cliff, Margaret, and Mateen. And you can find that thread about physics buildings on Cliff's Twitter feed. And I'll, I'll put a link in the notes for this podcast on the Physics World Weekly Podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Good talking to you. Bye. -bye. Thanks. Thank you. Bullying and harassment in the workplace leads to fear and silence. And this makes it very difficult to understand its devastating impact on victims. Michael Banks is in conversation with Marie Hemingway, a physicist who works for the nonprofit organization Speak Out Revolution, which is trying to break that silence. Hi, Marie. So thanks for joining us to talk about your recent article about bullying and harassment in the workplace, which is such an important issue. So the article was co-written with the physicist Mark Gagan from Newcastle University, and it highlights how bullying and harassment often goes unresolved, ignored, or perhaps even ends with the victim signing a so-called non-disclosure agreement. So before we get into the details of what you discuss in the piece, um, you work for the Speak Out Revolution. Can you describe a little bit what the organisation is and its purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Marie Hemingway. I'm one of the founders and chief technology officer for Speak Out Revolution. We are an award-winning, I like to say that, we won one award, so I always say we're an award-winning um, non-profit on a mission to cancel the culture of silence on workplace harassment and bullying. And we really do that through the provision of a safe platform 
um, that allows anyone to document their experience of workplace harassment and bullying and the route to resolution. And we collate and present global insights, open source, so that anybody working to improve inclusion within their organization or sector can access those insights and targets that target their efforts where they're needed the most. So the Speak Out Revolution is conducting an ongoing survey, isn't it, at the moment, about the impacts of harassment and bullying in the workplace. So what are some of the things that you've discovered? Oh, <laughs> quite a lot. Um, so yes, that's right. We host a, a global survey, the Speak Out survey, um, that is live to allow anybody to document um, at any point in time. Um, and I would say that to summarise what we're seeing from people who experience workplace harassment and bullying around the world, the processes and systems that we have in place silence targets of the behaviour, not solve the problem. And this is really driving out diversity from our organisations. Um, so it's it's probably easiest um, to share some insights with you through the typical journey to resolution that someone would take when they're targeted in their workplace. Um, so what we uh, typically see most prevalently, non-inclusive behaviours are very subtle um, and they're experienced over a period of time. Um, so much so that people don't recognise they're experiencing harassment and bullying until they start to see the mental and physical impacts um, of being in that environment. We see that one in five people don't report to their organisation and the majority of people will informally report. So they'll tell someone that they think can, that can help. Um, typically someone in their management chain, but they're not entering into any formal process defined by the organization like a grievance process. And what we see is that for people who informally report, the, the leading consequence is that no action is taken against the harasser or bully. And then they're left with the decision um, or not of whether or not they should go on to formally report, which has various um, burdens attached to it. So around one in three people will formally report to their organization. Um, and I think the key thing here is um, companies don't see a large part of the problem that exists with non-inclusive behaviors. Um, so actually what they see isn't necessarily always representative. And um, with respect to non-disclosure agreements, we're seeing around one in three people um, who enter into that formal process will end up having their experience silenced um, via a non-disclosure agreement um, or clause within uh, a settlement contract. And only 4% of people who do formally report will achieve a full resolution. Um, so we see that the, the experience and the path to resolution is, is fairly perilous for, for people who experience workplace harassment and bullying. And really the, the systems and processes that we have in place um, enable these uh, problems to perpetuate in our workplaces to the detriment of, of diversity of thought within our organisations. So you mentioned there about non-disclosure agreements. Um, so can you describe a little bit of what they are and what, and also what kind of impact they can have? Yeah, absolutely. So a non-disclosure agreement is, is typically a, a contractual clause or a document that is signed between uh, two parties um, so in, in the cases of workplace harassment and bullying, it's typically uh, an organization and the target of workplace harassment and bullying when they cannot come to uh, a resolution to the issue. And the target typically has decided that they um, have to leave the organization to protect their mental or physical health or that they just cannot continue to work in that environment anymore because of the um, abuse that they have um, been subjected to. And so... 
what typically happens is they will come to a financial settlement arrangement. And as part of that financial session, uh, settlement arrangement, increasingly uh, clauses within contracts um, around the ability for targets to openly talk about those experiences are being included within uh, as a prerequisite to uh, settlement so that um, people will leave and not be able to um, share that they've been subjected to workplace harassment or bullying, um, which which means that they, or, or the typical impact this has is they've not only experienced uh, the trauma of going through some sort of adverse workplace experience, but they have this additional trauma of not being able to process um, or resolve uh, the feelings of injustice because they can't openly talk about the issues that they faced. So what can university departments and, and also possibly learned societies do then to help the victims of um, harassment and bullying? Yeah, so I think with respect to um, non-disclosure agreements, uh, Speak Out Revolution are, are, part, are the data partners for um, the Can't Buy My Silence campaign, which is a global campaign to ban the misuse of non-disclosure agreements. They're working closely with the higher education sector um, and they've introduced the university's pledge. So this is where universities can say, um, you know, we're an ethical organization. We pledge and commit to not use non-disclosure agreements in um, situations such as misconduct or harassment and bullying within our organization. That pledge is um, available now. And I think there's 14 universities that have already signed up. Um, and I would say that for, you know, learned societies, there's, there is definitely the option to openly say, you know, as an organization that want to um, lead the corporate world, that want to um, set the tone for how we want to operate as an ethical um, organization, we will openly commit to not using non-disclosure non agreements in, in cases of workplace misconduct. Um, so, I, so I think that there are definitely, you know, we don't have to let the law set the bar for how we operate. We can definitely take steps um, to recognize that these practices are damaging to creating truly inclusive workplaces and professions. And on um, like an, an individual level as well, of course, you know, the impact of this can be enormous. I mean, what advice would you give to people who are the victims of, of bullying and harassment? Yeah, a really great question. So so I would say that we're doing a lot of work at Speak Out Revolution to really understand the challenges that targets of workplace harassment and bullying face. And I would say that from the data that we've gathered to the lived experiences of people around the world, there are very consistent trends. Um, and I'd encourage people to um, take a look at, go to our website, speakoutrevolution.co.uk, access our resources. Um, we have people that uh, individuals can reach out to specifically to, to talk through their particular challenges. Um, I would really ask them to uh, educate themselves on um, the insights that we've gathered from hundreds of people around the world, because I think knowledge is power, right? And knowing um, the challenges that they might face and the things that they need to think about in navigating their particular problem could be really helpful in bringing about a resolution. Um, in the least damaging way to their themselves as an individual and to their career. Oh, thanks, Marie. That's great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about this important issue. And Marie's and Mark's article, Bullying in Physics Affects Us All, can be found in the February issue of Physics World, as well as online at physicsworld.com.
Well, thanks again, Marie. Thank you so much for having us. As Michael mentioned, Marie's article appears in the February issue of Physics World magazine. Also in this latest edition is a profile of the SETI Institute's Sophia Sheikh, who explains how scientists are scanning the cosmos for evidence of extraterrestrial civilizations. She talks about her work on Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1, a curious radio signal that was detected and observed in 2019. And she also mentions that she has been inspired by Star Trek and impossible ideas. The profile is by David Apple, and you can find it on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Meet the Techno-Signature Researcher on the Lookout for Exo-Civilizations. On the 25th of December, the James Webb Space Telescope blasted off from Earth on a 1.5 million kilometer journey to its orbit at the L2 Lagrange point, where it is now. From that vantage point, it will observe the cosmos in fantastic detail, launching astronomy into an exciting new era. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, host Andrew Glester meets James Webb Space Telescope scientists, who recall their experiences of the mission launch and the telescope's journey so far, and look forward to the first observations that should be made in about six months' time. You can find the podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's weekly podcast. Thanks to Marie Hemingway, Cliff Burgess, Michael Banks, Margaret Harris, and Mateen Durrani for their contributions. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Physics World.